morning. Welcome to our 1030 service, Pastor Rob. Welcome to those of you watching online as well. I um, had no idea, you know, months ago when we planned out the services that we, like we do, um, and this service was planned, and the sermon was planned, titled, The Lord of the Darkness, that um, within 24 hours of this delivering this sermon would be not one but two horrible um, tragedies. Um, most of you, I'm sure, have heard about um, the gunman that killed 20 people. I think 20 is the last I heard and uh, injured 26 in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. And <clears throat> some hours ago, another gunman struck in Dayton, Ohio in uh, killed, I think, nine more. Uh, let us pray together this morning. Father, we just come to you this morning, and Lord, we, we don't have much we can offer or say, but we, we look to you, sovereign uh, Lord of the world and of this, our country, our lives, and, and seek your help and your guidance, and we pray for uh, these families, uh, <clears throat> both in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, uh, families, uh, at least 30 who have lost a, or near 30, 29 or 30, that have lost a member of their family, and uh, <clears throat> perhaps another 30 or 40 who have a member of their family uh, injured, maybe seriously, and Lord, two communities that have been shocked and rocked um, by unexpected, um, not just, you know, a bad day or bad times, but unexpected um, evil uh, that showed up um, in the last 24 hours. So Lord, we, um, I don't, I can't begin to um, understand these things, to explain these things, to know <clears throat> what to say, but we just look to you and ask for your help, for your strength, for your, um, that you would um, activate the body of Christ in these places, that people might receive encouragement, help, um, healing, um, hope. Um, we pray, and we pray for these leaders in these communities and these families. And we pray for ourselves, Lord who, um, although we don't live in those two places, we live in the same world <clears throat> where that happened is the same world we live in today. We pray that you would help us to be um, alert to your presence and when we ask for your help, in Jesus' name, amen. We are in, as Jason mentioned, a series of messages in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8 and 9 over the summer. We're in the last message in Matthew, chapter 8. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open it up, turn it on, and follow along as I read the last handful of verses from this passage of Scripture in, the, in, the, in Matthew's Gospel, verses 28 through 34, and a message titled, The Lord Over Darkness. When he, Jesus, arrived to the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. 
Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now this is um, one of the strangest and most baffling passages, not only in these two chapters that we're looking at, but I would say, and it wouldn't just be me, in the entire um, you know, Gospels, right? This is a very strange passage. Uh, you know, here we are talking about miracles, and um, in, in, in Jesus is, is meeting these demon-possessed men, and they're having, he's having a conversation with demons, and, and there's this, um, you know, uh, all these pigs, and this death, and this, um, you know, encouragement for Jesus to leave town. Why is this here in the Bible? And what does it have to say to us? Or what can it say to us? A couple things I want to point out. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, what does that mean? Um, the Sea of Galilee, John, and Mile mentioned this last week, is, is actually not a very big place. Um, he, I think he said Seneca Lake. Seneca Lake's probably bigger. Um, the Sea of Galilee is kind of is a humble lake. Um, some of you have perhaps been there. And it says he went into the other side. And the reason it says that, this, this would, if you read the whole gospel, it makes sense. Most of all the activity of Jesus that some of us have known for our whole lives, you know, Capernaum and, and, um, and Tiberias and Nazareth, you know, where Jesus as a young uh, person lived with, his, uh, with Mary and Joseph, etc., was all on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. In the west side of the Sea of Galilee... Um, was a Jewish stronghold in the first century. It was Orthodox people. That's why all of the disciples, all 12 of them, the 12 apostles, I should say, they all came from the same geography. It's like they were all from, you know, Rochester, New York. I mean, that kind of geography. They all came from a close place on the western side of the Sea of Galilee that was a Jewish, very strong Orthodox Jewish place. The West side, east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, you know, to the other side, was only a short boat ride. You could probably get there in, you know, in no time, you know, half an hour or less. But, although a short geography, it was, in many ways, the other side of the world, okay? It was a place that people avoided. And, and Matthew has some tells in this passage that are pointing this out to us as, as people who are reading the gospel. One of them, of course, is the pigs, right? So this tells you the Bible is written with intentionality. That may not, you know, strike us as, as unusual, but for Jewish people, okay, the context of the, of the Bible, the, the, the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, Jewish, Jesus was a Jew, many of you know that, um, pigs, swine were unclean animals, right? Even Orthodox Jews today I, don't eat pork, I suppose, right? It's an unclean animal. And so it says to us, 
that this is a place where Orthodox Jewish people didn't go, all right? This is one of the things that screams to us. Another thing, of course, is the demons, right? I mean, that's a place that you don't want to go to. In fact, in Mark's version, it's a little longer. Matthew's a little more economical. In Mark's version, Jesus, in having a conversation with his demon, says, what's your name? And he says, our name is Legion. And when you look at the particulars in Mark's gospel, there are 2,000 demons that are in these men, okay? We don't understand how this all works out. But this was a place of um, spiritual darkness. And then, of course, there's the violence, right? Mentioned in verse 29. They were so violent that no one could pass this way, okay? Full of spiritual darkness and violence. Nobody wanted to go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are actually in this passage. They're mentioned in, in Mark's longer version, but they never open their mouth. And why don't they do that? Well, because the disciples, maybe you'd do this if you were a kid to your parents or to your boss or to your, you know, the smartest person in the room or the person you love says, hey, let's go here. Let's go to this place. And you say, you don't want to go there. Either you don't like the food or maybe it's something more serious than that. But you don't say anything because you figure, you know, I'm going to give deference to you, right? And the disciples, really, I think what they're saying under their breath is, Jesus, nobody goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a morally and spiritually dark place. And I would say to you, I wish I could say this was, you know, just in the past, right? But there are places like that in every city, including this one. And I won't ask anyone to raise their hand. I've lived in Rochester most of my whole life. Many of you have. But I'll bet there are peop many of us who've lived in this city our whole life or lived in Lima, a great city, uh, in, in their whole life. And there are places that might be 15 or 20 minutes ride from your house that you have never been in the city of Rochester. And you know why you haven't been there and you avoid it. And if someone invited you to come, you'd say, thank you, but no thanks, I'm not going there. Because you see them as dangerous and difficult and we're reminded, unfortunately, today that that violence can find its way into every corner of the world, into a mall, into a Walmart, into places um, like where we are this morning. But what's so amazing about this story, I said it was really strange, is not the presence of evil. Because the presence of evil is... is is there's nothing new. In that sense, some things changed in 2,000 years. In that sense, the presence of evil is as alive and well today as we've been, just been reminded in our world as it was 2,000 years ago. But what is so interesting to me about this passage, what's so puzzling about this passage, what really gets me and the question I want to ask ourselves is why Jesus comes to this place. First of all, he shouldn't go there. It's the, it's the other side. It's the dark side of this community. There's evil there. Jesus goes there, and Jesus goes right to the most notorious people relative to this story in this community, right? The people that everybody knows them. The whole town comes out at the end of this story. These men who are demon-possessed, who are so violent 
that nobody can pass by this way. I mean, everyone avoids them. But if there was ever going to be a demonstrative miracle, right? Jesus could have done any number of miracles in this town or in this region. If there was going to be one that would capture people's imagination, this would be it, right? If you can do something with these guys who live in the tombs, whatever that means, who, um, who are um, wild men and violent men and demon-possessed men, then you're amazing. But what's so interesting about this passage, puzzling, is this community is unimpressed, right? When, you get, when the whole town comes out and they say to Jesus, not give us more, come help me, come heal this problem, come fix that problem, come bring our community. They say, plead with him to leave their region, right? Does that make any sense? Now, if you look earlier in the, in the story when Jesus is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, there's one time he's in Capernaum. Maybe we looked at this in this series. And he's in Capernaum, the west side. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law. It's, just a, it's a modest healing. She has a fever. But then people get the word and it says, by the time the dead day is out, the whole town of Capernaum, probably small, let's say 1,000 people, the whole town came out. And Jesus spent the next you know, many hours healing all kinds of people because when the word gets out, people say, I want in on it, but not here, not here. Our world, this is one of the points I think of this message, is often closed to the power of God. But keep this in mind. I mean, you, you and I, you, like me, you guys all got up and came to church today, okay? But the church is not, live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vacuum somewhere, right? The church is a subset of the world. That's right. We all live in the world, every one of us. And our world is often closed to the power of God. You know, I've been a pastor for 20 years, some 20-some years, and I have seen, maybe some of you have, what I would call really, you know, a, a demonstrative miracles in my life. Not many. I mean, real you know, uh, water into wine kind of miracles. One in this church, not many, but there's, there's a family in this church, I'm not gonna point them out, but you may know this story and stories like it. This doesn't happen often. This woman had a, a very serious cancer diagnosis. You know, we saw the x-rays. This is not just, you know, sort of, you know, folklore. This was an actual x-ray and a diagnosis. Like many of you and me, families got together and prayed, and they prayed and just asked God uh, for healing. And in this case, you know, X weeks later, they took another X-ray, and this particular cancer was gone, okay? Not just, you know, got a little bit better, but gone. Now, you may say, well, Rob, why doesn't it happen more often? I have no idea. But what I'm trying to say to you is that does happen, but for every one of those that I have seen, I've seen a hundred or two hundred of people who have experienced the forgiveness of sin, who've experienced the grace of God, who have, whose lives were self-destructing and they've been rescued in a manner of speaking. They've been returned to their self. They've in some cases been returned to their broken family. They've been returned to some kind of purpose in life. And let me tell you something, that's an even more dramatic miracle. And those kinds of miracles are hidden in plain sight all around us if 
you have the eyes to see it. But see, even many of us, our world is often closed to the power of God. See, we don't see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul's words to this church. And even if our gospel is veiled, right? That's what this is. Paul was having this kind of conversation with his with this congregation. He's saying, listen, you know, they were saying all these things are happening, and God is active, Jesus is active. This is the reading of the New Testament. And, and people are saying, I tell my friends, and they're saying, We don't see what you see. I don't buy it. And Paul says, Listen, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, okay, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why am I reading this passage? I'm going to say this. The world that you and I live in is very skeptical of the claims of the gospel they would hear a story like the one i just told you you know it's just one story or whether it's the this woman who might have been healed from cancer or you know my life was broken and i became a i I received the forgiveness of sins it changed the course of my life they would look at that and say that sounds like a fairy tale that sounds ridiculous that sounds stupid why why would they why do they say listen get out of town jesus because their their minds are blinded right to the spiritual realities. They can't see them. They live in a closed system where many of us have lived. David Brooks, many of you may know him. Um, He's a columnist for the New York Times. And he has been for many years in in what is relatively a very um, liberal, uh, you know, newspaper. Um, The kind of token conservative writer, okay, for many years. But he wrote an op-ed on... Wednesday, Thursday, that I just thought was so interesting. I don't know what his voting background is. He's more of a conservative guy. But, but he actually wrote in response to the, the um, presidential debates, right? Any of you watch the presidential debates? I don't know. We're, not, we're a little bored of them already, I guess, probably. But he watched the presidential debates, and he basically said in this, in this article, almost in so many words, I can't believe I'm writing um, you know, in support of one of these candidates or at least saying some nice things about them. I would have never dreamed X years ago I would do it, but I'm doing it today. And the person he was writing about, just saying some nice things about, of all these candidates, was Marianne Williamson. Okay? Now, many of you probably don't even know who Marianne Williamson is. If you haven't paid attention, you don't even know she's running for president. And if you're, you know, if you're south of 40, you've never heard of Marianne Williamson. Right? But Marianne Williamson, uh, in, the, in, you know, in the early 1990s, became you know, a, a, a sort of a, a celebrity because she was started to teach on this book that was very unknown uh, for most people. It was almost a kind of a, a dusty uh, book, even sort of a quasi-medical book called The Course in Miracles, written by a psychologist in the late 1970s. But she read that book, has some spiritual overtones to it, and she turned it into a popular book called A Return to Love. And next thing you know, she's on the Oprah Winfrey Show, and ba-boom, man, she's a mega star. And she wrote three other best New York Times bestsellers, sort of, you know, advice, how-to, and um, off she went. But nobody dreamed even though she was this big star, that 20 years later or 25 years later, she'd be running for president of the United States. And David Brooks, 
who's a very smart guy, in so many words, said, not only did I never see that, but I never saw myself saying something about her, but this is what he had to say. It is no accident that the Democratic candidate with the best grasp of the election is the one running a spiritual crusade, not an economic redistribution effort. Many of her ideas are wackadoodle. But Marianne Williamson is right about this. And then he quotes her from Thursday's debate or Wednesday, whenever it was. Quote, this is part of the dark underbelly of American society, she said. The racism, the bigotry, the entire conversation that we're having here tonight. If you think any of this wonkiness, and she's talking about all the policy discussion. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with the dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred in this country, then I'm afraid to tell you that we are all in for some very dark days. <laughs> and David Brooks said, she's got that much right, right? Sure, the world is skeptical. Because they're looking for answers they're never going to find in a closed system. The world is closed to the power of God, right? But our primary calling, guys, is not the redistribution of wealth. Our primary calling is not the reworking of social policy. We have one primary calling if we want to make any difference in people's lives. Point them. Put them in the path of Jesus Christ. He's the only person who can bring hope and light and true change. Our world is often close to the power of God. Second, our, a word from God, in this case, a word from Jesus, changes everything, right? That's the other point of this passage. A word from Jesus changes everything. I was talking to this friend of mine, not a church-going guy. I think it was two weeks ago. And I said, what are you doing tonight? He said, well, me and my family, we, um, we, tonight is, is um, horror movie night. And I said, what is that? And he goes, well, we, you know, we, every X day, I don't know, I forget what day of the week it was, we watch a horror movie together. And I said, okay, you know, it's not a genre I'm that familiar with. But I said, uh, have you seen anything good lately, you know? And he said, well, last week we watched The Exorcist. Now, again, if you're south of 40, you've probably never seen that movie. Uh, it was based on a, a, a best-selling book, I think, in the 1970s. And it was maybe made around that time. And, but here's what I thought as I was reading this passage, okay? And I think it was very well documented, this movie. It was based on a, um, not on a true story as far as I know, but I mean it was based on, on true, um, um, the methods of exorcism in the Roman Catholic Church, okay? If you read the book. But obviously, as I thought about it, I can say one thing about this particular um, application of exorcism in the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't get their cue of how to do one from Jesus, okay? Because in this passage that we just read, there's no holy water, there's no Latin phrases, there's no technique, there's a single word in verse 32. Jesus says, go. And one word from the mouth of Jesus unleashes all of this activity. It turns these two wild men Mark says they were sitting and clothed in their right mind, right? And sends all these demons uh, out in, into this lake. And it's not magic power. It's the power of the living God. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Listen to these words. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed to the sower and bread for the eaters is an analogy. So is, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. There are other, another lesson in this passage, I think, is this, for you and me. That many of us are, are spiritually um, obtuse, right? Dull to what it is that God is saying. Never underestimate how far God will go and who God will use to get your attention and to teach you a lesson. In Numbers 22, an Old Testament book, he speaks through the mouth of a donkey. In John chapter 4, he speaks through the mouth of a prostitute. And in Matthew chapter 8, he speaks through the mouth of a demon to teach his disciples in something, in you and me, something about God. What are the two things you can infer from verses 29? The guy who gets healed in this passage never says a word, right? But the people who have a voice in this passage are the demons. Two questions. What do you want to do with us, son of God? They shouted it. The people shouting the message in this passage are the demons. And have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Two things that they teach in this passage that I wonder if many of us really believe. Number one is, they believed in the power of the word of God, okay? They what do you want from us? Have you come to torture us? Since we know what you're gonna do, listen, before you do it, before you speak the word, can we make a recommendation about where you're gonna send us? Because we're already convinced that the word of your mouth, as it says in Isaiah 55, what I, what I send it, it does it, Right? Unlike many of us, right, his words were performative. And they also knew this, judgment is coming. That's what he meant in the second question. Are you going to torture us before the appointed time? Acts 17, 31. I could have gone to many verses, but this is for time. Paul speaking, for he has set a day, speaking of God, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Right? It's talking about Jesus. He has set a day. The Bible talks about this all over the place, right? In the future. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying, listen. But do I believe that? Do you believe that? I talk to Christians all the time and even leaders who I'm not sure believe either one of those things. Perhaps the reason that God has not performed a miracle of any kind in your life or in my life is because you don't read this word, right? And if you do, you don't really believe that it has the power to change your life, okay? Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Well, these demons did. One word from God changes everything. I think the greatest threat to the vitality of the Christian 
experience in my life, the greatest threat to, I mean, I'm talking about does, does the Christian life really manifest itself? Is it really real in my heart, my life, my relationships? The greatest threat is not a culture that's upside down because that's always been true, even though I think the culture is upside down. The greatest threat is me not taking seriously or me being indifferent or you being indifferent to the words of God, right? That's what this passage tells us. And the message comes, in this case, through the mouth of a demon. Last thing this passage is the greatest wonder, this whole sermon series, I guess, or this part of it, is the miracle of God's grace. There are ten miracles in these chapters that we outline for the summer series. Five in Matthew 8, five in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, people before me have summarized it this way. The miracles of Matthew chapter 9 all, all point to something. See, all miracles point to something. The word miracle in Greek actually means sign. It's a sign. And it points to something beyond it. Like a road sign says, you know, mountain ahead or, you know, town this way or here comes the city or, you know, exit here. It points to something. And the miracles of Matthew chapter 9 point to freedom. We'll get to that in the next several weeks. And the miracles of Matthew chapter 8 all point to God's grace. Okay? All point to God's grace. The first person healed, we talked about this, was a leper. Now, why is the first person chosen in this story a leper? Because the lepers were the farthest from God in this community. And Jesus and God wanted to make the point to say, listen, the love I have for you, the grace I have for you, listen, I don't care how far you are. Lepers couldn't come to church. They couldn't come to the temple. They lived outside of the community. They were pariahs. They were the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. And Jesus says, I'm going to start there. And then the next one's a Gentile, which in this community were the people that lived on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, that's the next person. The third one was a woman who in this culture... You think our culture is challenged or imperfect. In this culture, women were second-class citizens. Jesus said, she's, she's going to receive a miracle. And the last one is a guy that's so full of demons in this culture. You and I, some on this room may not believe in demon possession. Jesus believed in it. In this culture, it was common. There was no, no, one, no one doubted it. This person that receives the last miracle, they're so overwhelmed with the moral confusion and moral darkness and spiritual darkness, they don't, they don't even have a voice, right? They never say a word. And the person doing their bidding is a demon, right? But nevertheless, they experience the grace of God. The point is this. Whatever God might do in your life and in my life, listen, it's, it, you have to look past it to what God is trying to say through it. And in what he's saying more often than not is it's, it's a statement about his love. It's a statement about his grace, right? Jesus says, the Bible, Romans 5, 8 says this, while we were yet sinners, right? When we didn't care about God, we didn't care about what he was doing in the world, all we cared about was ourselves, and we said, no, thank you. In fact, get out of my life, right? They pleaded with Jesus to get out of town. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Amen. right? This is God's grace. There's a miracle, Luke 17. Many of you heard this, but it's just a good example of this. Jesus heals all these lepers. There's 10 of them. 
Why is there 10? Because they live in colonies. Because in those days, they couldn't go to the market. They couldn't go to the grocery store. They couldn't go to church. So Jesus heals all these 10 together. It's a miracle. It's unbelievable. And they go away. And then one of them comes back. He's so overwhelmed with gratitude. And he falls on the ground. Luke 17, he says, thank you. And you know what Jesus said? Were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Now, why did he say that? Because he has a small ego? No, because he's saying, listen, the fullness of the miracle happens when you see what it points to. It's God's grace, right? Only one guy got it. Do you get it? Do I get it? That's what this takes. That's what this passage tells us. There's a strand of teaching that says this. Maybe you've heard it. The measure of faith determines the measure of help, right? God would heal you or me if we had more faith. And you know, Jesus does in the Bible praise big faith, right? Says it in different times. But he never requires it to receive his help. The very meaning of God's grace is unconditional favor and undeserved help. And when this captures your imagination and captures your heart, right, that you didn't earn anything, there's nothing you or I could give to God that could earn his favor, that earn his love. He loves you, right? He even says this about, think about your own kids. You have little kids. Your kids, you love your kids when they're four or five, six, seven, even when they're little. You love them still when they're older. But the point is, you know, when they're young, you, you're overwhelmed with love for them, Right? You're overwhelmed with love for them. Jesus says, if you, know, being evil, know how to love your kids, how much more does God love you? In other words, by comparison, the love that God has for you or the love that God has for me, right, before we've ever done anything, good or evil, is overwhelming. When that grace captures your heart, when you see it, right, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that they cannot see the light of the glorious gospel. That sh- but when you do see it, it changes your life, right? That's the greatest of miracles. And that's what we are going to celebrate now as we share in, this, in, 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 in the communion table. And as we prepare to do that, we do this once a month as a church, I want to read a verse of scripture just as we prepare and we'll pray and we'll take this table together. And many of you know you've done this, uh, you know, in your... We do this every month, but if you're, even if you're a different church background, you've, you've taken the communion uh, table. And this was based on, of course, the Last Supper. And Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he's taking this everyday meal, and he's going to bring new meaning to it and saying, I want to talk to you about my death, my resurrection. And he says, the covenant that's been in place for thousands of years, the Mosaic covenant has not worked. It's only brought condemnation. People look at the law of God and say it's perfect, but I'm not perfect, and therefore I feel like I got no business with God. He says, I'm going to create a new covenant. And Jesus word got those words from this passage. And I if you read the Bible with us, to read 365, this is the passage we read yesterday. So I thought I'd read it this morning before we prepared this table. There's only, this is where Jesus gets those words, right? Jesus was a, knew his Bible well when he was sitting at the last 
Supper um, with his disciples. The days are coming, just reading it to you, Isaiah 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with people. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach the neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they all will know me from the least unto the greatest, declares the Lord. Now here it is. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Okay? This is what's the heart of the gospel message. This is the grace of Almighty God. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So we're going to take this table. They're going to hand out the cup and the bread. Hold on to it. And then we will take it together in just um, a couple minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. And we, we just stand here now in your presence. And we do what you've encouraged and challenged in the church to do for thousands of years. To take just a minute to come back to the very foundation of our faith. Which is not anything that we do. Um, but it's con- contemplating, remembering what you have done for us. In the giving of your son. Who died whose life was expended so that we might know the forgiveness of sin. Help us just in these few moments as we prepare uh, to take these elements together. Help us, Lord, to open our minds, our hearts to the greatest miracle um, that all other miracles point to, the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin. And if there's an area, Lord, in, our, in anyone's life as we just use this minute, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if, you, if you're, you know, that say, listen, God, I need a work of grace in my life. I need a, an area of healing or forgiveness. I pray that we would just bring that to mind even quietly, privately in prayer as we prepare to take this table together, this elements together in Jesus' name. Amen.